Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. Welcome aboard, everybody. Uh, today we have James Stacy, co-host of The Grey NATO, a podcast about travel, diving, driving gear, and most certainly watches. Also, our resident Denny Villeneuve guest for episode 40. Here joining us, James Stacy. welcome. It's great to have you back. Hey, hey guys, it's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, James. This is uh, this is potluck number four, and uh, and I think we we probably tapped our our favorite Denny's at this point. Oops, all Denny. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna be looking into uh, into prisoners, and this is I mean uh, you know spoilers for the for going forward for episode fifty. Uh, we're probably done with Denny Villeneuve uh, potlucks for the time being, at least until we get that Dune sequel. Rendezvous with Rama after that and whatever's going on. We can we can reapproach him later on, but this will probably be the last Denny potluck for a while. How do you guys feel about that? You don't want to get into the French ones? As much as I want to talk about Polytechnique or Maelstrom, I feel our audience would dwindle uh, if we chose to talk about those ones. Um, they're interesting films, but we need... Uh... <laughs> We need to build up a little bit more loyalty in the listeners, I think, before or, we, or we maybe just, do that. Maybe just a bigger Quebecois contingency. I don't know. Also, speaking as a as a Canadian who took a couple years of French, uh, mandatory French in in school, uh, I'm I'm no good at it. I don't. I do not have it down. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'd be coming back on for uh, for a French language episode. <laughs> Embarrassing. Fair enough. But uh, I mean, before before we dig into prisoners, uh, following our new format, uh, just want to let everyone know. So we had our Christmas vote uh, what, for what's going to pair with prisoners uh, on the first of December, uh, and surprisingly, uh, uh, White Christmas beat out Elf and Christmas Vacation and Black Christmas. Stunning uh, upset, uh, right? Like I and and I think unbelievable. In, well, in like sort of like the post analysis, I think maybe what happened is like the type of people who like Elf probably really like Christmas Vacation too, and it maybe split its own vote sort of in there. And then the type of people who wanted to see White Christmas are of a breed, and they all just voted for White Christmas. It ended up beating Elf and Christmas Vacation by one, and the other two both tied for second. Um, wow. Did and Black, Black Christmas, Christmas got <laughs> Black Christmas got like four votes, and yeah. everyone who did vote for it messaged me to say, "Tell Taylor I voted for it." Well, <laughs> thank you to the four of you out yeah. there. So yeah, we're gonna. I mean, I'm looking forward to talking about the musical medium of movies because sure. it's definitely a big part of the film history and the film canon. Also, um, will certainly be our oldest film that we've discussed to date. Yeah, uh, 1954, Absolutely. Michael Curtiz film. But uh, so, I don't know. We'll see. About, we'll see. See when we the next time we put a Bing Crosby movie on the vote. <laughs> Shocker, but I'm happy about it. <laughs> Sorry, oh, that's good to hear. I wasn't sure. I honestly wasn't sure you would be. But uh, we'll we'll get that episode out after this one. Um, but in the meantime, uh, guys, how you doing? What's been going on? Yeah, pretty good. No, no, uh, no complaints for me here. You know, just realizing now that uh, the holidays are like days away. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely not prepared. I, I assume that's uh, probably a common thread among a lot of people. I kind of feel like <laughs> I blinked and, and summer ended, and then uh, and then you know it was Thanksgiving all of a sudden, and then now it's going to be Christmas all of a sudden. So it's one of those years that seems to have gone by pretty quickly. Uh, may, maybe it's a little bit of whiplash from the the pandemic and that sort of thing. But yeah, no uh, no complaints for me. Podcast is going well. Uh, still 
chatting about the topics that they <laughs> they explain someday maybe we'll run out of uh run out of stuff for those topics but not not so far i don't know you guys get pretty into the nitty-gritty on watches i i the episodes i've listened to i didn't know people could discuss so much about watches but you guys always keep it fresh i don't know how you do it yeah i mean it it's it, it is that nerdy i think it's it's one of those <laughs> where you can it is one of those it's, it's like it's it's like a lot of topics you can go as deep as you want to go right but like if you're starting at zero, it is surprising that watches are a thing to that extent. You know, I, I definitely I just spent some time with my grandmother and she was saying, like, well, how do you how do you talk about watches like they're all the same? And I was like, well, I mean, that, that's you're definitely not in the audience. You know, I yeah. think if, if, that's, if that's the perspective, it's probably not not a great podcast for you. So, I mean, sort of sort of on that note, I wanted to bring up that. James, we have like a mutual follow on Instagram. This guy, uh, Tom Place Expedition 660, 1660? 16610, yeah. 16, uh, Tom, Tom's, Tom's something else. So he's a stuntman in movies, yeah. a lot of movies. Every time I bring up a movie, he's, he either like knew, knew the guy that was on it or I'll bring up an actor and he's like, oh, I worked on them with this or, and, uh, and that sort of thing. And he's incredible. But yeah, he's a TGN fan and, and a big um, SSC fan. And uh, Expedition 16610 is... Um, the the number is the reference number of a, of a watch, a Rolex watch that he lost in a lake, mm-hmm. and he started this expedition where in the summers he goes there and hunts for it, and he's slowly you know digging through the bottom of this lake to see if he can find the watch. Mm-hmm. So he's a, a great Instagram follow and uh, a, a really sweet guy. Yeah, we'll we'll put a link in the show notes to him. But so he in the last couple of weeks he had posted about something called Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And I think maybe, so, well, that's the thing, right? What is it? Um, I I think maybe, you know, Instagram and the particular overlap of follows I have from sort of your community, James, kind of (laughs) rotted my brain a little bit because I immediately assumed like maybe it was him or like, you know, the stuff I know from Kyle Snar and his sort of like movie based uh, marketing strategies Mm -hmm. and things like that. I really assumed like they had just someone had shelled out enough money to get Harrison Ford to promote their watch as Indiana Jones. I had no idea this was a new Indiana Jones movie until a couple days ago. So I I just, I didn't know if you guys had heard about the dial of destiny and I I didn't know, like, is the watch community losing their mind? Um, I'll be honest. I haven't been doing a lot of Instagramming and I don't know what this is about. (laughs) It sounds like a ripe opportunity, right? I don't know what the dial of destiny is or, or any of it. So this is, this is a brand brand new news Mm -hmm. for me. I've been, uh, I've been largely not, reading instagram if that's mm-hmm. you like i'll go on to post something occasionally but i haven't been scrolling it as as much we uh we actually just launched and, and tom is in there we launched a slack for tgn uh cool. like so if you if you support the show you can get into the slack and it's loosely ridiculous it's replaced all of my other any time i would spend on any other social media platform well 500 people in there and I, i'm surprised i didn't hear about this in in the uh, film club channel on our slack that's the thing. So I like, and I know so little about this. Like I just thought I would Google it while we were getting this started. Dial. I don't know if dial even refers to a watch dial or, you know, dial. Dial can be a bit or... ambiguous. Probably sundial feels a little bit more, you know, cave adventure-y. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Hopefully that movie is somewhat okay. Is James Mangold directing? Which is he's good. He's good. He, he is Mangold. good. So I don't know. We'll see. Just wanted to toss that out. Something to talk about, but um, maybe we, maybe not a maybe not the kind of thing you say on a podcast all about movies. But I don't think I saw the last one. Crystal, Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull. One? I think I saw it. 
I rewatched it this year. I don't don't remember. How did it hold up, Tay? Did it was it like unnecessarily piled on when it came out? So I think that was largely the case. It's not a strong entry in the Indiana Jones canon. I'd say there's two good ones, two bad ones as of right now. Uh, or maybe two good ones, a mediocre one, and this one, which is not as strong. But it's definitely not as bad as I thought it was going to be when I rewatched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the CGI aged poorly. Some of it aged really well. It was a mixed bag. And uh, Is it Cate Blanchett well, doing an absolutely unbelievable weird yes. accent in that? Ru- it's supposed uh, to be it's Russian, Russian, but it doesn't really work. There may be hundreds of skulls at Akator. Whoever finds them will control the greatest natural force the world has ever known. Power over the mind of men. So yeah, Soviet accent, and it's not good. Um, yeah. <laughs> there, there's a couple really weak parts of the film, uh, but some of the things that I thought were really weak, like for instance the Shia LaBeouf character, were not as weak as I thought they were. Um, mm. He was okay. He didn't like bring the movie down or anything. If anything, he was like a breath of fresh air in a franchise that probably needed it. Better or worse than Temple of Doom? Worse. Yeah. Okay. See, do you like Temple of Doom, though? Because I got to say, last no. time I watched that, it didn't really work for me. It's okay. Yeah. I think it's okay. The other, But the first and the third ones are, are really strong, in my opinion. I yeah. like those movies. Tons of fun. All right. Well, I don't know. There, there's our <laughs> there's our Dial of Destiny chat. We'll, we'll, we'll circle back on that in June 2023. In the meantime, we got to talk some more Denny. Uh, we're talking about Prisoners. Uh, And this is what it's about. Uh, When two young girls are kidnapped in the Pennsylvania suburbs over Thanksgiving, their parents and a local police detective are pushed beyond their limits to find them. Starring Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal, Prisoners was directed by Denis Villeneuve and released September 20th, 2013. Uh, The tagline, uh, every moment matters. I mean, if if you say so. I'm not not necessarily sure that I'm convinced. Um, All 234 of them. Yeah. Yeah, but not uh, a short movie. Yeah, it really <laughs> it really sticks around. Uh, this so this was Denny's uh, second English language feature, but largely considered his first like Western or first American feature. Even though Enemy, Enemy also starring Jake Gyllenhaal came out the same year and was filmed in Toronto, but largely I think more of a Canadian production. So it's not didn't really have that scope that I think they consider Prisoners to have. Um, yes, yeah, but it was off script- of was very very highly sought after and this was going to be a prestige picture no matter who directed it yeah and i think maybe maybe that's a good entry point into the main thing i want to talk about here is in our sort of discussions leading up to this and i mean my discussions with james over the years where we'll be we'll be re-returning to villeneuve picks over and over and things like 2049 you keep sort of unearthing more more wonderful content in it and or sorry to say content that's such a dirty word so, such wonderful ideas and and lower directions content. yeah um and things like that whereas prisoners i find that every time i go back i like it a little bit less and what whereas like when it came out it really felt like a, a dark mature serious prestige thriller which i suppose it still is but i'd say maybe my appetite for that kind of thing has changed and i think that's true of today's movie going audience i don't think it's aged too gracefully what do you guys think i i would say what stands out for me in re-watching it is it's very clearly an early one from him mm. uh i don't know if he was at the point where you, you watch any of his recent stuff and it really feels like he's doing it and you could watch the movies 
together and they feel cohesive. This mm-hmm. feels like an outlier to what we know, what he's become since then. Less of and an the auteur piece and, and more of like a, a director for hire, right? They kind yeah, of matched maybe, someone who was capable to a script that was hot. That's pretty much my sentiment. Yeah, and, and I, the only thing I would add to that is it feels like a bit of this movie was was decided before he was given it. Like we we want you to make we we want you to make a Zodiac. We want you to do a a, a Fincher, mm-hmm. right? And or, or we need a Fincher, or this story would be good for that sort of treatment. Let's find someone who can do it. And I don't know if it was. I, I I'd be really interested to see what this movie would be today if he made it. I think yeah, certain parts would almost be the exact same, and then other parts would be like ad, like adversely different compared to yeah. what we see in this film. Um, Go ahead, Tim. I just say I feel like Villeneuve, as a director, is subject in this production to both the script and to two big actors in it, more so than his other movies, where I feel like he is he has a, a full, uh, verifiable sort of director's control over the productions of the other ones. Not that I would ever suggest that I read anything or or I'm reading into anything and saying like, oh, like he was being steamrolled by people. I'm just saying like at that point in his career, I think this this script carried a lot through and a lot of things that don't don't really age well. Well, that brings up kind of a question that I'll I'll raise at the end of this, but I think that it's actually even more than just two actors. I think pretty much all these actors seem to be fighting for an Oscar in all the bit parts that you get from Terrence mm-hmm. Howard to um <laughs> was it Maria Bello, right? And like yep. I think they all have Such their a... moments of trying to shine uh, above the content and just it's it's a performance piece. I think the script is okay uh, as like a as a narrative I think it's okay, but some of the dialogue is clearly written for performance uh with clichés, melodrama. Um I think the emotions of this film are so complex and some of that is carried out pretty well, but then you get like these over the top dramatic moments that I don't think work with everything else that I think is more inherently Villeneuve, which is the subtle moments of two kids being kidnapped that I think was Villeneuve's focus. But then he had to deal with big egos, big personalities. And I'm not even saying it's the actor's fault because it seems like you guys are kind of suggesting preordained that this was going to be the kind of prestige movie that was going to vie for Oscars, that was going to kind of put the script and uh, script writer on the map. Uh, Mm. And I don't think, and I think it kind of did those things in the timepiece, but it was also quickly forgotten, I feel, this movie. And as much as it launched Villeneuve into superstardom, I think that it was more his ability to like step in and handle a script that was passed off through a lot of different directors and a lot of lead actors passed through these roles. Some of them that we know of are Christian Bale, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Mark Wahlberg. Um, And some of the directors we know of are Antoine Fuqua and Brian Singer, which screw that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Fuqua uh, would have made a very different feeling movie. Yeah. You can say and, that too. Yeah. I, I think that that's evident. Um, although like, I actually don't think his style is very different than how Deacons and Villeneuve kind of shot this. It's very stark and contrasty. Um, but the question I wanted to raise is that have you guys ever seen a Hugh Jackman movie where he had a subdued performance or that he wasn't kind of trying to take over every scene he was in? Mm. There was, I'd say the most interesting thing I've seen him in recently 
there is I I'm sorry sorry to do it on this podcast. It was like a TV movie where he played like a like a principal of a school that was embezzling money. Okay. Um it's like an HBO production and that was pretty good, but I'm pretty sure he was also like kind of like showing off his accent game. So whether or not you could call it a subtle performance, uh I'm not sure, but I mean you're not wrong. Even the ones that, you know, you really like him in like our first episode on The Prestige, I think he's great yeah. in that. It's not a small performance. No. No one but is. When you, when yeah, when you're yeah. playing a showman, which he's done many times, I might add, mm-hmm. um, I think you're allowed to be that performative. Uh, in a movie like this, some of his scenes just feel a little like just that one step too far, almost. And I feel that's kind of because his character is boring and just has these lash out moments. But I don't know. It doesn't. His character doesn't fully work for me. I also found that I don't I don't this this may be the wrong maybe not the right the perfect spot for this but do you guys feel like they were trying to like unhandsome him a bit? Yes. With a goatee with the haircut yeah. like, too. Kind of like kind of like the, the haircut. You can he, tell he's he like has he's the like goatee the, like in normal life sometimes. But but it's like it's like the they kind of gave him like frugal dad look like he's getting like a ten dollar haircut or maybe he's cutting it himself or having just, his wife it, cut it. You know. This is this is like the he's like the John who's John Goodman in Roseanne. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's like the 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 but he's like that version of that dad like in he's always in plaid. None of the clothes like the other thing you look at is he was between two X-Men movies. So he's Mm -hmm. in ridiculous shape. Yes. And they they do kind of have to dress him baggy. They don't even put him in a (laughs) t-shirt. Yeah. They can't show his arms. He's got Wolverine forearms. He's got scary arms. Yeah, yeah. scary, scary arms. Yeah, those those are the kind mean, of arms that nobody could take his kids. And you could, like you kind of extend that full character to the things you learn about him, which is that like he sings the Star Spangled Banner in the shower. Oh, oh, I know. What he actually loves the Star Spangled Banner. I know, I know. He sings it in the shower. So I'm a I do not. Say. Yes, you do. <laughs> I got you. You know he loves Springsteen. Uh, he's you know he's a carpenter, but he's he's. I don't know if an apocalypse prepper is the right, the right term, but like definitely, you know, a, a, a prepper in general or, um, or, or whatever that subculture is. My husband likes to be prepared for emergencies. Um, but I mean, there's that. I mean, there's also you got Gyllenhaal with the facial tick, which mm-hmm. I think as a and performance. Yeah. As a performance, I think the facial tick is well integrated. It doesn't feel like. You can see people doing that sometimes. You can see it in their eyes that they're like, I'm going to hit it now and now and now. And I actually think like in my scene, there's a couple instances of it that feel very natural. But it does also feel like down to the way it's edited, perhaps the way it's directed, certainly. That feels like, oh, this is like you can see this as an Oscar reel clip, like after they read the nomination, right? Like Jackman, like smashing the, the sink with the hammer when he's holding Alex yeah, against yeah. the wall, things like that. That scene is good, though. It, I it, like that scene. It's tense. I, think, I don't think there's any like terrible scenes in this movie. Some of them are a little long, mm-hmm. but I don't mind a long movie or long scenes. Me neither. The the other thing I think that's that's worth encounter or thinking about is the time in which this movie came out. Jackman's in between two X Men movies, which were huge mm-hmm. for him. Right, he was the leading man at the time. Everybody, he was on the cover of every magazine and the rest of it. And Gyllenhaal is End of Watch, Prisoners, Enemy, and Nightcrawler, all in 2012, 2013. Is yeah. when those came out, right? Yeah, yeah, this was when I was in school, and a good buddy of mine, I don't know if he wrote a paper on Gyllenhaal, but he had a term for it. He called it the regillination. 
I arguably like the most iconic period for Jill and Hall, other than Donnie Darko and uh, Lee's. Um, but it gave him like um, like broke back. Yeah, bu- yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I thought you were gonna say broke Bubble Boy. I'm not talking about Bubble Boy. I'm talking about broke back. So now I'm gonna go out into the world and win her back, and nothing is gonna stand in my way. But there was, but Tay, to your point, there was an entire gender. Like, like I'm, I'm a good, good many years older than both of you guys, and like I grew up knowing that like Donnie Darko and Bubble Boy, were, there was just like if you were a few years older than me, those movies were really something. They, they right. were, they were at least in, in the zeitgeist of when you came up. Mm-hmm. Now he's hitting an entirely different generation and a new market of people. And when you think like, look, End of Watch, not perfect, but still stands up as a pretty watchable movie. Is that Fuqua? And, and yes. Yeah. With uh, um, uh, his Pena, Michael Pena. Pena, thank you. Yeah, yeah he's, he's so good in that. And that, that movie shows that, or that, that film shows that he has a ton of, of range, Pena. Mm. Did you say that it's Fuqua? Is it not? At least written by, maybe not directed. No, it's it's David Ayer. Oh, wow, good oh, for him. Who went on, this, who went <laughs> on to like just have a downward trajectory. <laughs> from there was that after what's that dvd you lent me with keanu reeves as like the racist la cop is that oh, not air as well that is brother that's, uh, street streets of sh- brothers or something like that street kings <laughs> street kings <laughs> for a cop who breaks the law why do you always go in there alone so there's only my version the biggest risk isn't being dirty but ain't la's deadliest white boy i'm in washington he used to be one of us it's coming clean Oh, I remember Street Kings for sure. No, but Gyllenhaal was in that Fuqua, like the 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 one that you couldn't stand, James. Uh, the one where he's the emergency dispatch responder. Was that oh, not from the pandemic? Yeah, that yeah. was that that one. that was written yeah, I... by by True Detectives Nick Pizzolatto, but directed by Fuqua, I think. Oh, okay, sounds sounds right. I don't know. Maybe I'm right. just thinking everything's directed by Fuqua, but. And, and, you know, another one that I had kind of forgotten about was in 2005, kind of in between his two hot periods, he did Jarhead, uh, Jarhead which was, was a really too. big Sam Mendes film of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Gyllenhaal's had a quite an extensive Source career. code is somewhere somewhere in the late aughts, probably, right? I think it's 2010, yeah. Okay. With Duncan Jones. Uh, I, like, I like Source Code. Me too. Uh, he does a lot of really good films. What's always, what's continued to impress me as he's got old as he's become a more seasoned actor i shouldn't say older seasoned actor he his physical transformations are subtle and dynamic in the sense that he looks like a different person and across his body of work and i mm-hmm. really like that about an actor who is not only a chameleon in terms of his performance choices but as someone who can physically evolve into new things and i wanted to really mention about this movie is that he they design him to be a physically intimidating person, which I don't think he really is. Yeah, like I think Gyllenhaal is a in shape guy, but he's not bulky like they kind of make him kind of appear, especially at the beginning of Prisoners, where he appears as this kind of um, presence. Yeah, like a prototypical detective that's going to get the job done. And I, to me, if you take him out of this context, he doesn't really seem like that kind of person or character or being. Um, but I, they I do think a good job. A, yeah, I think that's an interesting point because w- one of the notes I made is that you know, Jake Gyllenhaal, I think he's a, a big enough guy or whatever. Like, but like, in, it, 
what's more interesting is how quickly his character moves to um, physical aggression. Mm. Yeah, it goes. He's hand constantly hand grabbing that. somebody, slamming somebody against an RV or a wall. Um, well, they do. They, they they sort of hint at him having a rough upbringing, right? Being a being in a boy's home, foster care. He's covered in tattoos. I think it's part of this overall uh, a theme, which I don't I don't really love because uh, it's it's a little pessimistic. But I think it's like you know everybody's a victim, everybody's a prisoner to the things yeah. that are done to them. To put it as as plainly as possible, and they either become a monster themselves or they start hunting monsters. Yeah, I also think there's there's like twenty what does prisoners mean statements in yeah. there because like what are they what are they really saying this isn't a movie that's about a lot of subtlety definitely not from like the script or the dialogue no so is it you know are they in my mind it's like they're prisoners to their idea of control like oh, okay a cop sh- he he's he's cut he's found everybody in his past cases mm. uh obviously hugh jackman is ready for anything. Um, it's the self, yeah. It's the he's a prisoner to this concept of self reliance and how that crumbles around him. Um, His religion too. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, I, I do think. Yeah. yeah, like I think there's there's this idea. I think this movie generally being, you know, answering not not the simplest question out there, but what is the nature of evil, um, and like can you defend against it? So you got Keller who's ready for the apocalypse, but he can't defend against his fellow man. Um, or he's ready ha- for all these man versus nature, man versus acts of God. And, you know, na- evil is kind of, you know, it's banal. It's, it's, it's common and it's ubiquitous. I think this movie also suggests, um, and it doesn't matter that you have civilization or technology or societal systems like a police force or law enforcement, uh, or religion, another thing that, you right. know, depending on who you talk to is a, is a, is a creation. Well, it is a creation of man, but whether it's nature, you know, anyway. Um, but even the side you know, all these things from can the fold very quickly. to the policemen in this film are burdened, right? Uh, even, mm-hmm. Like Gyllenhaal being a prisoner to his past, perhaps, it's implied. But what I found interesting about loki detective loki is he's an enigma right like we don't clearly understand what he is or what he stands for what his morals are um we don't see any of his like family we don't see any anything specific about his past or his house you get you get one scene with him where he isn't working and it's the opening scene where he's eating chinese food alone on thanksgiving and, and, it, and he's still trying to figure the waitress out. And he's it's a locked off shot where he doesn't even we don't even get his POV of the waitress. It's just on him, I believe, the whole shot as he yeah. kind of looks up and around. So to me, it came off as like this self-centered, not in like a maybe not as like a, in a selfish way, but like he's only, he's very singular focused. Um, and that's really the one thing we know about him. But I think his style is contradictory to what we see in a normal detective like this um, in a in such a cunning uh, straight edge detective um, from like the neck tattoos to like the mm. the haircut kind of being a bit more youthful and modern uh, there there's something about the ring on his finger would a detective like this be in a in a suburb police department that's what i'm asking i guess right, right? like why is he here that, that but that brings me to one of my main things is i feel like they really when they started the mood board for this movie, it was a lot of seven. <laughs> yeah, right. Because this, you know, we get a lot of rain yeah. and and atmospheric conditions. You get a lot of um, tight, kind of grimy environments. 
your evil uh, has the, to have uh has to have iconography like the mazes the things like the that. maze yeah. yeah and and then on top of that you get you get everything's a little bit um it, it it's 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 that like deeply masculine sort of projection of like work mm. Hall's working uh he you know the the killer is working and and that's why i think the the end the reveal when you actually do get down to who who the who the killer involved is who who the kind of the root of the evil is is kind of an interesting reveal because it belies some of the energy throughout the the film yeah because i do think you expect you like the the protagonists in this movie give you an expectation of what the evil should look like and it's not melissa leo Mm-hmm. Right, and I mean to to the extent that like you know Keller begin begins reabusing uh, an abused child, um, thinking thinking Alex Jones to be the uh, to be the culprit. Um, yeah, I, I guess without getting too into it, this is gonna might, might sound a bit ambiguous, but I feel the the real core of Denis Villeneuve that you that you can kind of latch on to in this movie is his ability to use audience expectation against you. I think he's always mm-hmm. been very good at that, whether it's him choosing to be subtle about it or not so subtle. I think he knows what you think is going to happen, and he tries to play you against that, um, which is why I think the like that Keller, uh, Hugh Jackman's character, is a really interesting protagonist from that perspective because we you feel naturally inclined to align yourself with the a film's protagonist, Yet his yep. actions are despicable and deplorable, and you don't want to agree with them. But yet his strong belief that Alex Jones, played by Paul Dano, is is his child's abductor, really forces us into a weird spot as an audience member. It's like a corner we're backed into where we either choose to believe our protagonist or we have to like completely disregard his actions, which is almost impossible. So it's it puts us in a really interesting spot for judging the killer. Un- in an unbiased way which is of course what i think denny's point is it's really hard to stay yeah. focused um beyond the way that we see keller depicted in this hmm. and it's very difficult to see loki as somebody whose motivations and personality you could really attach to yeah um, i mean he's not he's not impossible. Columbo. like he, he he's, yeah he's about as far from Columbo as you can get and again yeah, yeah, he no, has no, no more, more things he yeah, and he well, and he and he also he just has no like there's like Tact. devoid of an emotional hook to him at all, other than like him really wanting to do the job and to find find the girls, right? Like yeah. I mean, all, there's several sequences. There's several sequences in his scenes with other people where he's asked a direct question, sometimes with eye, with implied eye contact, mm-hmm. and his character's reply is to stare back at the person. Yeah, like, and it, I mean, it, it's definitely on, sort of on that note. I do really like. Um, Maybe one of the less usual things about this movie is I really like the relationship between him and his police captain. Yeah. Um, and also, like, yeah. so I, I, I reviewed the script uh, just before we started the recording to go over at least the scenes that we picked. And the script is so much more the conventional captain. He's, like, laying down the law. He's telling Jill and all he's got this much time to find the girls, sure. make him look good. You know, all this stuff. And I think it's way more interesting what's in here, which is that this guy is kind of ineffectual, maybe just kind of worn down by how many victims he never found. And almost like, Jono keeps having to look his own future, his own potential future in the face. Yeah, they and they, and they don't seem to have a great relationship, but they also seem to be okay with the fact that they're in each other's orbits. 
Yeah, it's, it's like they found a rhythm, even if the it's rhythm a... is kind of like abusive from Jill and Hall yeah. to the captain being like, I told you, give me one more day or like, let me do my job. Right. Like well, stuff it, like that. It yeah. comes across that the captain is like just kind of baggage to Jill and Hall. He's slowing him down because he's ineffective at his job. And that fr- and the lack of bureaucracy frustrates Loki. What I tell you, what I tell you one more day. Mm um interesting dynamic yeah i mean i'm you know another 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 sort of tally and sort of like the the faults in these systems that are designed to address these problems and prevent these issues from occurring and they're they're just riddled with holes they're all human failings right um yeah i mean before before we we move too far away i did want you mentioned sir james about them using seven on the mood board which you can definitely see and things like that and i did want to talk about so uh our our buddy roger deakins filmed this movie and i do love the way it looks i think there's a lot i think he was very faithful to the heavy handedness of the script in that there are many ways in which it's like you know loki is looking into the abyss right like it is beware fighting monsters lest you become one etc 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 the abyss looks into you there's a lot of instances of loki walking into a dark space yeah. or being on the edge of a dark space we've got that in my scene and Tay's scene in my scene yeah and i think though i like i think it's very simple and actually so i listened to the deacon's podcast episode that had Hall on it and Hall talked about how you know he really he he chose to do this because of working he'd already worked with uh, Denny obviously but he wanted to work with Deacons. Uh Dano said the same thing. He didn't like this role at all but then he found out uh the guy who made Incendies was directing the movie and that Deacons was shooting it and he's like okay maybe I'll do that role. Um but Jonah had said that Deacons maybe didn't get an Oscar for as long as he did because he's never showing off. He is he was always in service of what needs to happen and never trying to make some shot that you could add to a reel. He wasn't I don't showing know if that's off until 100%. Blade Runner 2049. 2049 in Sicario, I think he really just starts like knocking him out of the park and being like, listen, I'm still here. I can do this. But this one, I think I think this movie's very controlled. It's very subdued in the way it's shot. I love the sort of warm yellow light on the edge of darkness all the time. And we can talk in more with more examples when we get into the scenes, but I did want to bring up Deacons. Yeah, I would say that the only thing that, that leaps out of leaps out of the movie in, in, in that might combat the idea that he wasn't showing off is that sequence where at the end where Hall is driving back to the mm-hmm. hospital. Yeah. Which it will it's get the first into time that the taste. movie yeah. doesn't feel hyper, hyper real. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's ultra like highly subjective to, uh, to Loki at that point. But, yeah. and I mean, I'd say like the money shots in this movie, they're, they're kind of interesting. Like you've got um, Bob Taylor's room full of locked cases that all have snakes yeah. in them. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of where you're like, you're like, this is a Denny shot. This is like, this is a shot from Sicario, essentially. Like you can, you can align it directly with shots. in the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, But like some oddly menacing shots, like I think a real achievement where right around, I think it's like sort of, you can read it as the moment of the kidnapping. The girls have, have gone off. Like they'd gotten permission to go to the other house if their brother went with them. And then there's like a cut of some time. And then you're outside of um, Terrence Howard's and Viola Davis's house. And it's just a shot of a tree, like slowly pulling in on it. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you could write 40 film essays about whether you want to talk about like man versus nature, like what that what that shot's even supposed to mean. It's very menacing. And it has, in terms of subject or content, almost nothing to suggest that it would be. There's that one of the railing in uh, 
in Keller's like rundown, like the places working on too, where it just mm-hmm. like takes a it takes a shot of just the railing and it. I think it's a slow zoom on it. I think, yeah. but it, it stood out. There's a couple of these ambiguous cuts to something that's not narratively attached. Um, I don't even know if they're largely symbolic or if to me they seem to be pace setters. They are like the one you're mentioning with the tree cut to outside, like the cutting to the outside tree is almost to me like a reminder of like, oh, the kids are outside. It's raining. The atmosphere is here. This is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. there, there's probably a lot more to it than that. But to me, like that's that's the vibe that it hits when I see that. It's kind of like, oh, OK, I'm lulled into it's almost it. yeah maybe maybe like denny denny sort of working on his what becomes i think a, a lot more of an iconic directorial approach which are these sort of more patient pace setting inclusions in between scenes or in the middle of scenes right like how long you'll hold on something without conversation right between gosling and bautista the pot on the stove in the opening scene of 2049 maybe may an early like a proto version of that you know there's a lot of scenes in this movie that reminded me of that opening from Blade Runner, actually, just in terms of the pacing and the silence, like the stillness uh, that he's comfortable playing within. Uh, I don't think a lot of filmmakers have that level of comfort, um, but having Deacons as your cinematographer certainly would ease that a bit. But mm. not a lot of filmmakers have the luxury of taking this much time to do certain scenes, uh, both because they don't have the talent to do it and because the studios won't let them do it. But for some reason, this movie operates on the, in that way, even though this is Villeneuve's jump in the studio picks. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, so this was edited by Joel Cox and Gary Roach. Those are um, uh, Eastwood, Clint Eastwood's editors. They've done a lot mm. of his stuff. How much you want to bet which, they were pre-attached? probably I would assume so because they haven't done any other Denny stuff so I think they probably came on with the script and the script we've talked about a lot the script is by Alex Guzikowski Alex Guzikowski Um, this is really the only movie script he's done he's created another show called The Red Road and he's worked on that Ridley Scott TV show about androids it's kind of connected to the alien universe I don't I honestly Hmm. can't even remember what it's called Wolf Children something like that I don't know Anyway, so this guy hasn't written anything else. Um, but, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Cox and Roach were attached to the script. And I think they probably align fairly well with Denny's style. But I those sort of pace-setting shots, as, as I think you, you termed them very very well, Tay, it's the kind of thing where I feel like they would edit that out if, uh, if Denny wasn't directing it, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't know quite what formula came together to allow some of these shots to be and scenes to be so long but it's not typical of a hollywood film it's not typical of an of even an oscar an oscar buzz movie like this kind i the performative scenes yes but there's too many like non-performance scenes that are really drawn out to make me feel that this isn't some kind of denny influence on the studio early Mm. maybe deacons too yeah and yeah, I mean, that's that's again, I feel like maybe one of the things that dates this movie a bit is this sort of stranger danger, um, you know, uh, crisis in the suburbs, missing children, kidnapped children thing. Not that it doesn't not that it's always not always a, a ripe sort of topic for a thriller or for tension, but it does feel more rooted in that era than it does now. Right. It's a little bit more like Nancy Grace's version of Zodiac is, is sort of what you get out of Prisoners. In a way. 
it yeah, it I wouldn't disagree. fit like a sort of a cultural zeitgeist at the time. I don't remember when Lovely Bones came out, but Lovely Bones was a bit before this. Um, there's there's twenty yeah two thousand nine. I feel like there's been a consistent run of child abductee kind of movies because Gone Baby Gone would have been a bit before that too. Um, yeah, oh six maybe. And now, and then I think the, like like largely they moved on. The next wave was like Gone Girl. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know what? I was actually gonna say the next one I can think of is more the horror route, which would be like the Black Phone or Split. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, both which are more horror. Both of which are are far more are far more about the abductee and less about the people affected by the abduction. Right. Yes. Like this is so rooted in the horror a parent would face when mm-hmm. when they have to do this and you know you have we're big fans of uh, maria bello here you can go back and check out our um history of violence episode uh where we sing her praises and i think she does well in this with very little it's a highly thankless role to basically be a, a grieved mother who's 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 taking taking pills to to sleep through her morning period she gets that one scene and it it is a it's a it hurts to watch that scene it's very traumatic it's very emotional um and unlike some of the other scenes that i think are a tad too emotional i think this one works really well because Mm. it's not a conventional scene and it doesn't it's not a good look for our protagonist the way he's kind of forcing her to take the pills and that's just a weird moment for both of them uh that's not complimentary to either of their characters and it does allude to the just the high level of stress and anxiety and trauma of such a scenario. I I also think there's an interesting through line between the way that she's approaching the, the fallout of losing her child to the, the actual way in which her child is being kept in captivity. Mm. Ah, yeah, that's interesting. Never thought about that. I didn't, I didn't ever put that together to have like a, and it means this, Mm. but I, I feel like the, being drugged and there. kind of out of it, kind of not really awake and and being locked in a space, is uh, is is similar for the two. Mm. That brings a sort of different feeling to that final scene where she wheels in Anna to visit Loki, and they're both her and Anna both kind of have the look like they just came out of a fog. Yeah. So that's that's fascinating. And I also I don't want to brush past. Uh, I'd say pound for pound the best actor in the movie, uh, Viola Davis. They give her a little bit more to work with. I actually like the arc of her character where Terrence Howard kind of brings her in, you know, somewhat reluctantly, but I think you can tell he's like, yeah, she'll, she'll solve this, right? She'll, she'll bring Keller to his senses. And she's like, you know what? Ends justify the means. I like, if this is how we get our daughters back, I'm, I'm, I, I can be a part of this. Yeah. I just kind of wish she was in it more. I think she's fantastic. Yeah. yeah I mean, me she's too. always good. I have never seen her turn in a bad performance. Um, yeah, no, I thought she was great. The, and then I, I'm, I'm actually maybe on the weird side of it. I would have liked more Dana. Um, and may, maybe they cut something more of an interrogation, more, more of a conversation, more of that. Just because it, like, we'll get to it when we get to my scene. But there, there is this lucidness mm. that kind of jumps in and out of his more cliche sort of role as, as a, as a, a sort of shut-in weirdo with you know some um mental health issues but i i i think that there was a there's a little bit more there and you know in my notes i wrote you know find me a bad dano there's no bad danos 
Um, but he he was one of the few I think that 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 leaned towards less versus more in in the roles in this. As, as same with Bailey. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Dano. You can tell like there were so many mistakes you could have make him, made with this role, and I think yeah, he opted on the side of doing less. Because um, I mean, yeah, like that that quote that I had found where he said, you know, people love prisoners. This is one of those that you don't really want to do, but you do if you know what I mean. I'd seen Denny's film on Sunday and he had told me Roger Deakins was shooting it, who I had a massive crush on. Did I want to play that part? No, like really? No, but like, yeah. So it's like, you know, he's, he's making a call, but like, I think you, you read between the lines, you know, he's like, do I want to play like the, uh, the guy with a mental disability who's, who's blamed for kidnapping children, right? Like the, the weirdo stranger danger. It's a real right? thankless Tucci, role. And Tucci mm-hmm. had gotten that nom four years before for playing the weirdo in Lovely Bones. And, and then no Tony's one wanted kind to of embarrassed touch by him. it too. Yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean I mean I think I think Dano does does do it a lot less and, and it it would be neat to see more of what's going on with him. I think you're right, James, but it probably probably yeah, serves but... the character in not showing much more. I, I almost like the yeah. scene I almost picked, but it was too short. I think it's a very meaty, like, 50 seconds is when Keller kidnaps Dano's character. Um, Dano comes out of his house, and then he, like, picks up the dog by the leash and, like, shakes it around. And it's just this little, like, violence begets violence. There's, like, a pecking order of abuse going down and down and down. And then, and I think I think Jackman's performance in that scene where his hand's shaking with the gun is great, too. But not not a big enough scene, I think, to dissect. Yeah, I think there's also like there's there's that cliche in there that we've all been told that like oh when they looked into the history of serial killers and you they, know very they violent hurt offenders, small animals. Yeah. you know there was there was yeah violence towards small helpless animals and I think that was it was like I th- I like your take better. Well, it's the, and the my order, my take but... is only with benefit of understanding that Alex is a victim and not the perpetrator. Yeah, for sure. Right. Uh, so yeah, as you're watching it, I think it feeds into yours as you're watching it the first time. I'm sure it makes him look evil. Yeah. Um, not that it's not an ostensibly evil thing to do to a dog, but with benefit mm-hmm. of his entire life. Uh, all right, well, let's dig into this potluck. Uh, you know, it's getting cold there on the table. Uh, my scene uh, is uh, twenty-eight ten to thirty-two fifty. Uh, in this uh, scene, during a routine follow-up with known sex offenders in the region, Detective Loki discovers a hidden basement in an ex-priest's house containing a dead body. Um, so yeah, I always thought about this as the discovery at the rectory. A um, couple reasons I would have picked it. I think it's a good first hint at the overall plot, um, and also sort of, I mean, in the in an alternate universe, I think a, a better version of this movie you can sort of launch from here. But uh, so essentially, this is after, or no, this is just before they're going to let Alex out, and um, Loki is just sort of going there. There's a, I think, a, a very effective little montage of him talking to different registered sex offenders as seen through like rain covered windows and things like that it is very seven but again it's got that deacon's warmness to the light which i don't think you'd ever really see in a fincher movie quite like this yeah all of them are Um, perfect compositions and it's it's this odd alignment where um sorry zodiac 2007 man this um six years after but it's another sequence in which uh gyllenhaal discovers a scary basement um in an unexpected part of the like an unexpected basement too. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, so he goes to this rectory 
um, and he's knocking on the door. I really like this shot um, where he is knocking on the door because you have it almost half and half. He's in the light of the, like, the porch light and then the door leads into the, the house is completely uh, enshrouded. Right. So it's again, he's on the edge of this darkness. What's he going to find in there? No one's answering. And he goes around and he looks through the window, sees the priest on the floor. I think a very well edited cut where he rushes out of the window that he's framed in. No music cue. Right. No need to overdo it. I think there's a lot of held back opportunities for music cues in this movie as a whole. Um, I noted also in in your scene, Tay, when we talk about that. Uh, And he goes and he figures out that the 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 priest is uh is just sort of in a drunken stupor and he starts uh examining the house and looking around and he notices that the refrigerator the refrigerator uh its power cable is stretched hot and it's clearly been slid into a specific place and he moves out of the way finds a door to the basement and then i mean the way the rest of this shot i really love it keeps shooting up from this basement space towards gyllenhaal And before he turns on the basement stairway light, it's just the light from, like, the kitchen bleeding in. And the doorway opens, and it's just this doorway into nothingness, into, a, into for all intents and purposes, an abyss. A pit. And you realize that the staircase is, yeah, the staircase has been taken out. I think you get, you get this nice little consideration by him. I think you can, you know, it's reading into it, but whether or not he calls back up or tells anyone where he's going before he, he jumps into this place with, with possibly no way out of it. Searches around in this dark basement and finds a dead body tied to a chair. And on the dead body, a, a pendant, uh, a necklace with, uh, with a maze on it, which I think is the first time you see the maze. You don't really get more of the mazes until Bob Taylor gets introduced. Um, but I think, I think like, really, I'd say more than anything else, I love how this is shot. I love how the basement stuff works. Um, mm-hmm. He also, I mean, to, to close the scene, he then wakes up the priest and, and interrogates him by hanging him over the the missing staircase which again another smart cut there's no in the script there's a lot about how Hall drags one of the statues back to the where the staircase is and climbs up it to get back out none of which is necessary we don't need to see that there's also at the opening of the scene in the script it's literally like a shot of his list of sex offenders and he's got one left and that's the one he's at all this unnecessary stuff that i think right denny and cox and roach were, were smart enough not to include um and so the, question and, for you. Yeah, yeah. Oh, please, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say the priest tells him that he came to me for a confession. He said he'd killed 16 children. He bragged about it. I convinced him to come back here. He said he'd kill more. 16 children, huh? <laughs> All right, let's go eat chicken. And something that I don't think they really touch on is that, like, the the idea here is that the priest killed this guy, right? He tied him to a chair and... Left starved him, him or 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 left him down there to die which when you have the full benefit of the plot where the idea is that marissa leo's character and this guy were waging a war against god because their children their child had been killed by cancer the idea that this guy was coming to a priest to brag about all these children that he killed and then the priest fights back by by murdering someone by obviously you know the priest is a registered sex offender it's not like he was a perfect guy before he did this but another sort of sacrifice of his humanity um, in this in this war. I think it, it's a little bit more interesting. Wait, so but this guy was the prisoner? Yeah. Here, the titular prisoner in the movie Prisoner by Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> um, the, the, it, it's interesting. I do like this scene because it does suddenly open it up to be more than a conventional 
child kidnapping, something mm-hmm. if, if such a thing exists, uh, sadly. Um, it, so it, it suddenly opens the scope and adds in a little bit of this like mythology or background to history, that sort of thing. I did always find it interesting, and I remember thinking this at the movie theater when I saw Prisoners, that they kind of discover that there's more to this crime by moving a fridge, which is mm-hmm. in the first crime in Seven. They find right. out, um, they find his <laughs> yeah. message written on the wall behind wow, the fridge, yeah. uh, based on little scrapings of linoleum that he mm. fed the, the poor guy. Um, I don't, I don't, it's, it has, it, like, I, I definitely have said this, uh, you know, a couple times already, but it, it has this feeling like they, I don't think they're going like, oh, it's a nod to seven or whatever, but it has this feeling of, like, that's what they figured they had on their hands. And then because of the actual storyline, they couldn't follow through with anything like, um, what seven delivered uh, i mean yeah i wouldn't be surprised if guzikowski in writing the script did this as an intentional homage right to move a fridge that said for as much as i've been thinking about this scene and researching this movie that's it did not occur to me so that's a it's a it's a salient point if uh if obvious to our listeners yeah I, good scene though i enjoyed it yeah i do like that scene and if they did rip some things from seven they ripped some of the right things like the cd locations mm-hmm. Uh, which really set the right kind of gloomy tone you need for a movie like this. And, and you know, this basement scene kind of fits right in with some of the imagery we see in 7, too. It feels like it could be in the same movie. So it, it does. Mm-hmm. they do feel like good uh, companion pieces, I guess, would be the right way to say it. Yeah. And, I mean, to, to, not to be unfair to the folks that made this movie, Villeneuve and everyone else, uh, 7 would never be made again. That, that movie is an anomaly of the year in which mm-hmm. it came out and the fact that somebody willed it into existence. Uh, I think what we see in, in, in a movie like this or in, even in a movie like Gone Girl, which deals with a lot of darkness in different varied ways of doing it, is um, one that can actually be then put into movies and, and presented to awards and, and things like that. There's something entirely no, almost non-commercial about Seven. Yeah. There's not commercial, I think commercial in the, in the audience sense and not at all in the, in the critical sense, maybe like not the kind of yeah. thing you're going to get, throw noms out for. I don't think so. Maybe either. not in that climate. No, I mean, the other thing that occurs to me with this movie is I, or this scene in particular is it is kind of your first hint at this larger system at play. And I yeah. think maybe one of the things that doesn't work for me after watching this movie so many times is that like, Everything like Alex Jones, Bob Taylor, the missing girls, um, they're all just part of the same web, which makes it feel very small and trite to me in the end. Whereas I do think there is this there there is the potential for this much more menacing idea that there is this ubiquity of evil that is just sort of ever present. Um, and I think when the first time, if you, if you try and put yourself in the in the mindset of seeing this for the first time and you see this scene, I think there's this much more threatening thing where it's just like, this is not related to the girls. This is just as soon as you start scratching the surface of this Pennsylvania suburb, there's all this evil underneath it. Um, yeah. It may, yeah, I, th- I think. So you're saying this, it makes this, it feel the, less special? I, I think I think. By the time you get to the end of this and you put it all in place that it was the guy in the basement and Melissa Leo's character and they were waging this war against God and they took Alex Jones and they took Bob Taylor and then they took the girls too. 
it does make it feel like very small and neat and tidy and like there's only there's only two evil people in the, that exist right right do, do you think it would have been more successful if they didn't have the maze element the maze so is the a mo- little mo- like there's minute, that there's that sequence an where hour and 40 long and it, then we, we don't have the priest it, it's, it's a question of actually finding where the girls are yeah i mean the maze thing is is one of the weirder things because there's that in another scene where like the coroner explains to Hall like the novel that scene. was based on i have no i still don't know what that means I, I don't I don't really know what's being what's being aimed for there. Um yeah, well, the scene didn't work so well for me. No, um even some parts about your scene here, Tim, just stood out as uh like anomalies in Loki's mm-hmm. character. Um mm-hmm. he does have angry outbursts throughout, but this one seemed more personally fueled and he goes from like zero to ten pretty quick here. Hey, you know what? I spent six years at the Huntington Boys Home, Father. Hey, you know the Huntington Boys Home, right? Huh? Hurting a f- like you would be a real treat for me. Why don't you tell me his f- name? He didn't tell me his name! Um, I do like the cut, but there's something less intelligent about his approach to this scene than some of his other mm-hmm. scenes. And he's so calm, cool, and collected when he walks into this priest's house. And yeah, I know he finds a dead body in the basement, but the way he reacts is just maybe not what I would have expected. It's just kind of comes out of left field. Yeah. What I would ask is, do you think Loki is putting on the anger and the intensity as an interrogation tactic when he's hanging this priest over the thing? Or do you think he's that angry about the priest, a known sex offender having a dead body in his basement? I think if he was an intelligent character, he would realize how intoxicated the person he's interrogating is. And he's not going to, it's not going to work. Because he does just bring him in and he gets interrogated in the police station later anyway. Yeah, because this guy is someone who he's literally woken up from a drunken stupor. Like, mm-hmm. This guy is not there. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, it, I think it it's felt a little personal. bit of an outburst. I think it may, maybe speaks to his character. Yeah, it felt personally. And again, addictive. yeah, the boys' home history, the kind of stuff like that. Like that. I don't. I don't know how heavily they're they're hinting at some form of abuse, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, and one thing I did really like about the cinematography in the scene is, um, well, you already mentioned like going from light into darkness is, is a really nice visual aesthetic, but, uh, the way they shot the dust in his flashlight was really cool. Like in mm. the, yeah. in the beam of his yeah. light, I love seeing, I don't know. It's just an easy visual, uh, an easy, cool visual you can do. And they did it really effectively because Deacons is a master and doing something like that isn't always a given. So just fun way of shooting a mysterious scene like this the intensity is good um i think a lot of it similar to my scene comes from the sound mixing being very quiet and focused Mm -hmm. on the ambient sounds yeah i'd say if if nothing else my scene is is probably first and foremost uh a highlight reel for deacons right and his use of light i think it's fantastic but uh very very shortly after my scene we have a a a tiny little interlude and then we get to james's scene yeah so my scene kicks off at thirty-three forty-nine, and it's when alex is getting out of custody so he wasn't he was arrested and then you know he could only stay there for so long and then they had to let him out obviously a lot of the main characters and what we you might see as the good side of the line at least at this point in the movie are upset about that so the scene um kind of starts with alex having to sign a form to leave the police station his mother's there and is obviously helping him. It's helping to establish something about their relationship. It's also that moment, like in True Detective, where you 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 kind of get to see 
the the actual person. Mm. They're they're shown to you in broad daylight in the setting in which they should be in a police station to be stopped. Yeah, and and they're you know the 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 sort of who done it element is still in play and is is still very largely redirected towards either Alex or some unknown you know kidnapper. Um, you you get cross cuts to Loki just kind of mugging the two of them from the other side of the of the office. Obviously, really pissed that they're getting to leave. But he even does the... he does kind of like the knowing smile too, right? Like he takes it like. Then you have like a little bit of a smirk at Alex Jones. Uh, I think once he's leaving, they make eye contact just before yeah. they actually leave. And yeah, there's there's a little bit of like I'll get you, uh, not now, but you're still mine. Mm. And uh, they go outside. There's press everywhere. Uh, Dover rips up in his truck, and <laughs> that truck gets Dover... gets some good shots in this. Movie. He rips. He rips a bunch in that <laughs> yeah. F1, in that co- contractor's F one fifty for sure. They must have had a pretty wide angle lens on that because he ru- he rips right up to the camera fast and it's all Hugh Jackman yeah. like driving because he hops right out of the car fishtails a bit yeah it's great it's a it's a really like action-filled moment mm-hmm. and because you know it's going to be tense because the press is there he's getting out his mother's there there's cops everywhere Loki's in the background of the of the crew of uh, Loki's in the background of the crowd and then in in comes Dover uh like I said rips up in his truck grabs Alex kind of half throws him against the car and, and hangs him out um, and 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 you know tries to you know wh- where are they what'd you do with them that sort of thing and he says they didn't cry until I left them. they didn't cry until I left them. what did you say which is a moment where like at this point in the movie you're going like all of these guys are missing something they're they're not they don't have the right person there's not enough evidence it's just a weirdo who's getting blamed for being weird or whatever and and then you go like oh wait maybe it is him and i think that that it it is a pivotal moment. why would he say that exactly it's a pivotal moment in the movie and it really i think kind of sort of like how tim's scene kind of cascades out into the background plot of the maze and everything this kind of kicks off what what dover does with the rest of his motivation for the film Mm. Uh, and this is also where you know they then it pretty much then cuts to the chief's office dover's getting his Cuffs taken off. We'll arrest this guy. Tell Detective Loki what you just told me, and he'll definitely look into it. Go ahead. That asshole, you promised me you'd keep in custody, right? And you didn't. And right now, when I grabbed him in the parking lot, he said right to my face, they didn't cry until I left them. Right to my face. He's, he, said, he said that to you in the parking lot just now? Right now, yeah. What did I just say? In the parking lot, before you grabbed me off him they are immediately kind of like he said it now you sure you didn't you sure you heard the right thing like like kind of being cops but he's taking it as like all right i've we've reached the end of the road with how much i can expect from these people mm-hmm. um and then of course he leaves no think about it. why would i make this i'm not up? saying that to you i'm just asking you a couple questions i will talk to him no don't okay? talk to dover arrest him and that, that kind of closes the scene and it's it's not like a flashy scene it's not um it doesn't it doesn't have the cinematography of either of your two scenes that's sort of it's, it's a little bit more straight down the middle storytelling mm. um but i think it establishes a few things about a little bit about the chief's relationship with loki a little bit about um dover's relationship with the world at this point and then something about alex that goes like well he's got to be connected somehow uh yeah. there's got to be something here or he's just this there's a there's a meanness Mm-hmm. Um, which wasn't necessarily conveyed in other scenarios. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing that sticks out to me is, yeah, Dano in this in this scene is probably like, again, without a lot of flashy cinematography, stuff like that, it, it allows that sort of space for the actors to work. And there's two things that about Dano that, that stood out to me is, number one, um, so they, they have the opening sequence of the scene where he has to sign his name on like the release form. And they're very careful to like shoot these inserts where you show he's got very childish writing. He's obviously very arrested in, in his development and things like that. But the, the the really genius choice, the thing that that popped out to me is when he's done with it, he's got the pen and he's got the form and he turns to Melissa Leo mm-hmm. to give it to her and she's like, Good job. And like, you know, I checked, that's not in the script. That was a choice that they made where like he would funnel everything through her kind of like a kid would. But like in her yeah. trying to foster his independence, she's like, no, 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 you can you can give it to the man. It's fine. And and, and I, I I really love that tiny little data point that you get there um and then the other thing is just yeah when he delivers that they didn't cry until i left them i gotta imagine that that was not easy to shoot because jackman is holding alex holding paul dano off the ground holding him still um and they're shooting over his shoulder so i have no idea what that's and they're between two cars i have no idea what that setup would look like my bet my bet is is he's laying down He's like lying on like an apple his, crate his or butt, whatever, his, you know. His butt's probably on like some kind of bench so they can lean him up mm-hmm. for the shot and like hold. Um, but I know one of the it's not a mistake. I'm not gonna rip on a movie for something like this, but they broke up the shot of Hugh Jackman grabbing him into two shots, and when they mm-hmm. cut away from it and cut back, it's almost at the exact same point as when it cut away. There and it's one of those like lack of continuity moments where it just makes me think that was a struggle. Whatever it that movement of getting Dano from the grab to the position mm-hmm. where he's in when he says the line that was a struggle whatever happened in that in those in that setup was hard for them to like get over mm-hmm. um and because yeah. there was an editing flaw and it looked like a cover-up of some kind i guess my my take on the scene is that it's a tremendous counter to tim's scene because Tim scene like we were talking about almost opens the door to the macro story at play um, and then this almost distracts you with the micro story by kind of throwing it back in your face with a, with the most intriguing piece of evidence yet. And this is the piece of evidence that no, not only takes over and distracts Keller, but us as the audience as well. From this point on, we mm-hmm. are pretty vindictive in our in our hunt against Alex Jones, just like Keller is. And it's all because of this one moment in which... I think, I, like as I mentioned earlier, it's all done through identification with the protagonist because we have no reason to doubt him. We heard and saw what he saw, and it's very incriminating what he did see, even though it's out of con, or even though he's wrong, and ultimately the context is just incorrect. But we have no reason to disagree with our protagonist from this point on, and I think this is just really intelligent on Villeneuve's part, showing us something that we should be more focused on in the mystery, but then distracting us mm-hmm. with something that the characters, not not just the characters in the plot are distracted by, but we as the audience are now distracted by. Well, yeah, because, I mean, you don't... So if you're sort of charting, like, the the macro or the maze information, Bob Taylor doesn't show up until, like, almost the hour mark. Yeah, so half hour um, after But this. he, like... And that's at the vigil. There's nothing about the maze in that. If you want to talk about the actual maze, they don't go into Bob into Bob Taylor's house for another hour, right? So you're right. Like, they sort of drop this dead body with the maze necklace. 
and then in the next scene it becomes the is alex jones actually the bad guy for the better part of an hour uh, as he gets captured and tortured and yeah yeah and villeneuve is a is very clever with how he uses this uh narrative strategy or editing strategy but this is a a convention that goes back to early 40s cinema where, where you're trying to create a sense of mystery and you just try and make your audience forget about something that you actually revealed at the beginning and it only matters mm-hmm. again at the end it's very it's it's traditional storytelling um in or cinematic storytelling i should say specifically but it works it really is effective mm-hmm. at distracting the audience and making us wonder about all these other things and I would say in terms of the format of a mystery, I don't love it. It does no. feel a little messy, but also this movie is not a mystery, first and foremost. Like, the the point of this movie is the what will Keller do to Alex Jones to get the information he thinks he has. Like, that's the dramatic crux, so I understand why it goes in that direction. Yeah, and I think it's also the movie's a lot about the tension between what Keller's doing and the fact that there's a timeline in which Alex is dead, presumably, can Loki put everything in order to figure things out before more pain, more tragedy, mm-hmm. more death happens in, in within these pe- these people's lives? Every moment matters. Every the moment tagline matters. tells us. Yeah, makes sense. I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that the main reason this movie stands out is just because of Keller's actions. There's not. That's the only like non-conventional part to this child kidnapping movie and it really without that i don't think this has that much more to say it could have focused on more Mm. subtlety of the reaction to kids being kidnapped and the trauma that that induces but i don't think it does it it focuses well enough on that i would say it almost doesn't focus on it at all i mean the, the kid's perspective is so limited in this or even the perspective of those who have been kidnapped because you you don't get a clean read on alex um, due to his disability and then the the kids are kind of you know um, uh, Davis's kid comes in you know late and and gives one little piece of data which turns off the you know the sort of end of the film or turns on the end of the film mm. and the 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 Dover girl she has a couple lines at the end and I would say she's arguably doesn't seem that interested to be in the room in the first place yeah um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the girls are almost more MacGuffins than anything else, right? Like, because this yeah. movie is about all the other victims in this type of a setting. All the prisoners, Tim. Right, prisoners. It's not called victims. It's uh, Denny Villeneuve's <laughs> prisoners. Um. <laughs> all right, Tay, Tay, what's your scene? <laughs> well, I was going to say, honestly, the maybe my favorite moment in the entire film it's about 10 seconds long and it's when Keller is in the bathroom washing his face and he looks and sees her toothbrush. Those are the kind mm-hmm. of things that would make this a, a much stronger movie. In my opinion, I still think it's a good movie, but those are the kind of things that smaller I performance, see. So, those subtle, points. those subtle points that maybe yeah. you don't think you don't, that don't come immediately to mind when you think of the trauma a family has to incur. Uh, when this happens right like it's just one of those Mm -hmm. things that you don't think of uh so it shows that Villeneuve's head was in the right place for some things that's all that's all I was trying to say with that um my my scene though because you guys kind of were near the beginning I wanted to go right towards the end um and we don't do climactic scenes typically but I really wanted to focus on this final climactic moment between uh Loki Mm -hmm. and Melissa Leo's character Holly Jones the scene takes place at 
two hours, 14 minutes and 15 seconds to two hours, 19 minutes and 48 seconds. It's a five minute scene. And uh, this is where Detective Loki uh, goes to visit Holly Jones's property only to realize she is in fact the child abductor he's been seeking this whole time. Um, she injects Anna with uh, the fatal concoction that she's been, I guess, using the entire time, but this is a more fatal dose. Mm. A swift confrontation with Detective Loki then ensues, leaving Holly dead and Loki wounded. Um, a frantic rush to the hospital results in a tense emergency room conclusion. Uh, this, like I said, don't usually focus on climactic scenes, but this had a really gritty, realistic feel that I really liked. It's not a big bang at the end. It is, a, there is like a shootout, but it's not glorious in any way, and it's not uh, glamorized. I really like the subtlety of, uh, of the actual actions and the result of it, which is that he gets cut on the head, you don't really get a close-up of it until like we get in the car so the immediate impact is just like kind of we're standing where the victim was and i really like how this whole scene kind of plays out it then leads into this really dramatic drive to the hospital um overall it's a lot of the same things that stood out to me about tim's scene and this scene um it's the way that sound is used to kind of infer our character's perspective uh, because when he enters the property he doesn't know where she is until he hears her i think he she uncaps the needle and that's what he hears there's there's a like the 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 close captioning is that the floorboards creak ah um while he's looking at the mirror or the mirror while he's looking at the photo of the man who he realizes is the guy in the in the rectory basement right and i guess i should start there you don't, and you don't get any score until then. Right. It's completely quiet until he hears someone else in the house. Yeah, I, I should jump back to the beginning. Sorry, I just jumped right to the end there. But um, right when he's pulling up the car, this is right after uh, Holly Jones has just basically buried Keller. Um, mm-hmm. And she hears another car pulling in. And her reaction is just like, just justifies her performance perfectly. It's this really cold conniving attitude that she has where she basically assumes that she's about to get busted. So she's going to exact as much pain as humanly possible. And she's going to go mm-hmm. kill Anna by injecting her. Yeah. Um, and this moment of her realizing a car is there and that she's still going to, she's just going to go ahead with this action is one of the scarier moments of the film, I'd say. Yeah. And like, you know, as known colloquially as like, you know, suicide by cop, she, before she draws the gun after injecting Anna, you hear her say, "Don't make sure they cremate me. I don't want to. I don't want to be buried in no box." And then draws her gun, fires at him, clips him in the forehead, and he he kills her. Um, yeah, you. So you mentioned that like you don't really get a good look at the wound. You um, see the blood hit the after wall. basically. Well, they 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 fire their shots, and then a lot of it is like the scene is largely focused on Anna. Um, it's framed around her body and not around Gyllenhaal. And that actually came up in that Deacons podcast where Gyllenhaal said, looking at the script, he, he was, he said he was essentially panicking. He's like, I don't know how to perform this. Cause I've just been shot. I've just found the girl I've been looking for. And I just found the perpetrator. He's like, he, he described me. He's like, I'd have too much egg on my face. He's like, I'd be doing too many things at once. He had no idea how he's going to do it. And then when they showed mm. up to shoot, 
Deacons and Villeneuve were like, well, we'd like to do it like this. They already had the plan that it was going to be framed around Anna and not around Loki. And Vill- and Jonah was like, so I was very appreciative. He's like, that's a that's a one of many examples where a director and a cinematographer saved me because he's like, whatever I would have picked, it wouldn't have been perfect. It would have been a mitigated performance. I would have been picking playing the pain from the gunshot over the relief of finding the girl or over the panic of finding her drugged. All those things he's like, and in the end, I didn't. I, he didn't have to do those, right? He was he was out of focus. He does do a pretty good job, uh, like for the screen time that he's given in those in those brief seconds. Like he does a good job. Mm-hmm. I liked what he did with like reacting to the pain, but also kind of being too distracted to react. So, mm-hmm. as much as he seemed wor- as you're saying he's worried about it, uh, I thought he did a good job and is conveyed well. It is a complex series of emotions happening there, and it's all very quick. Um, unlike the reason why I I actually wanted to do this scene was because it doesn't have the Hollywood feel of unnecessarily drawn out tension in a gun shootout. It's very quick and messy and inexact. Um, and he isn't really on his a game. Like he doesn't react till a little too late. Do not move and show me your hands. Make sure they cremate me. Sure as hell don't want me buried in some box. Both hands right now. Right now, um, like you say, like you're saying, Holly Jones kind of had kind of had this death by cop or suicide by cop mentality. So, um, it would have been hard to like get away unscathed. But he also just didn't seem he seemed distracted. And I th- I like the subtlety of this of all the implications here because it seems messy and not precise. And I like that. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right, like, especially, you know, we talk about homages to Seven. There, There's nothing that this scene has in common with, like, the what's in the box, right? It is sure. what's in the box is all tension. It's all drawn out. It just keeps ratcheting. This, I think there there are a number of wise decisions made. Number one, like, she explains her, her MO to Keller in the previous sequence. So now, yeah, when the guns are drawn, she's not holding a gun to Anna or like the needle in her neck and going like, we're waging a war against God and monologuing while they're at gunpoint. Yeah. It's 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 just it's on and it's off and it's done. And then the, the tension is, will they get to the hospital? Right. Um, but before it, it, we jump into that driving, I did just want to mention, yeah, like there's when he goes into the room that has the photograph of the man, that's one of like again a dozen shots where it's loki walking into darkness and then he turns on the light uh, it's just just another one for that tally sorry james I, I i think the other thing that that i find interesting about this is is it's obviously a scene that that reconciles a bunch of stuff for the audience she's dead they found it they're they're at the spot where this bad stuff happened they're not that far away physically from where keller's being held mm-hmm. all these sorts of things but it also introduces some new ambiguity did Anna get a little bit of the poison that yeah. was in the needle? We're not 100% sure. How, how bad is the wound on on Loki? Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not the end of the movie in some ways. It, it, it kind of starts this new segment of the film that brings that fi- that does finally come come to a certain point. And then, of course, you still it gives you a different background on the fact that Keller's, you know, 40, 50, 60 feet away underground. Um, because true, it's, it yeah. just it kind of it gives us like we're keep we're going to keep going we're not this isn't this isn't like we're not lowering the tension we're just changing the focus mm-hmm. yeah it's not the la- it's yeah. not giving signs that this is the last beat no 
Yeah, no, there's still this stuff up in the air. I mean, to that point, like, the scene opens as Loki pulls up to the house, and out of focus in the foreground is the Trans Am. Yeah, um, which is blocking the whole brilliant... Um, uh, and and sorry, before we we move on to I think the like the 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 drive to the to the hospital, Tay, you have in your notes, and I also have in my notes. Um, kind of interesting that he just goes into the house. Yep. Not 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 really. Doesn't feel super well motivated. Uh, and especially in comparison to the scene earlier with the priest, which he would apparently mm-hmm. seemingly have much more motive to go into that guy's house unprovoked. Um, and he waits until he sees through the window that there's an issue that he goes into that house. And then in this circumstance, he's remember, he's only there to tell her that they found Alex. He's not mm-hmm. there because he suspects her of anything yet. Um, she mis- yeah, she it's misunderstands filmed, that. It's filmed but... as if like, yeah, he's like knocking on the door and he hears someone moving around inside. And then he just sort of says like, Holly, and like opens the door and goes in and then goes into the bedroom and checks out the photo. Um, and right so it is it is kind of like i think they just kind of make it happen maybe to the script's credit he assumes like he assumes that uh keller is there maybe causing some harm and Mm. but without saying like i'm saying to the script's credit because it doesn't explicitly say that out loud so maybe there's some subtlety in like implied in his actions but i i missed it i don't get it a little difficult to track yeah um, but no, then I, I, I mean, I do, as, as you guys mentioned before, I do think you probably have like the sort of highest intensity sequence of the film now and, and a little bit more showy cinematography from Deacons, uh, where, uh, Loki puts Anna in the back of his car and, uh, and drives off to the hospital through, he's got blood pouring into his eyes. Uh, it's snowing, but it's whatever the temperature it is, it's the snow is thawing as it hits stuff. So it's like this mix of rain and snow on the windshield, it's all stoplights and and brake lights and and headlights and stuff like that. I think I think it's pretty effective. It yeah. It brought me back to uh I think when we were doing research for the Blade Runner 2049 episode, I came across this quote from Villeneuve that said that because he's Canadian, he wanted to bring snow into the Blade Runner universe into mm-hmm. the world of Blade Runner. Yeah. Um and it's always stood out to me in his in, in his earlier films that he used a lot of snow as well. Um, in, even in Asandi, we uh, he incorporated the use of snow um, in a movie that mostly takes place in a desert. So I think he has like there's this. It's like a bit of Canadiana. It's a bit of his just upbringing, his author, his auteurship coming into the picture here, um, just bleeding in. Uh, I feel mm-hmm. like setting this in northern pennsylvania is a crutch because it had to be in america but this movie could easily just be somewhere in a suburb in canada quebec ontario yeah it feels very similar and i feel like this ending is kind of his just him understanding what snow actually looks like and how dramatic it can make a drive that you need to get somewhere fast um and using that tension because a lot of the tension is ratcheted up because of the um, visual um, obfuscations and the drive itself is just like a, a bleary mess right and you don't know if it's yeah. because he's bleeding into his eye if it's causing like some brain damage or if it's just because of the natural elements he's gonna pass out yeah 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 no i mean two two points on that to its credit the script does call for snow but i also think you're right that like denny wasn't gonna steer away from that right like 
he definitely used it. I think he knows what it's like to drive in snow. And I do actually think this is a very, this is something the audience can very much put themselves in. We're like, you're in a rush. You're in, you're in dangerous driving weather, things like that. And then he's driving dangerously anyway. And then you add, as compared to being in a shootout, something that you don't have a direct uh, experiential analog in your audience necessarily. I think it's an interesting uh, climactic scene right and choice of tension to be here and not in the shootout or not in like i mean again like whether it's seven or silence of the lambs or whatever there could have been a basement in holly's house there could have been an actual maze there are so many other ways you could have ended this that are are in in many many more ways so much more heavy-handed and i I really like the choice here yeah i like that i like that incredibly raw left turn into the hospital Mm -hmm. that makes me that makes me (laughs) wince every time i watch this movie because you just you could see the cars coming and you know that uh, i I feel like this is his this is his like uh, the balance to all the bad emotional control we've seen previously Mm -hmm. it's like when push came to shove he was going to die getting her to the hospital yeah um uh and 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 that that's like the commitment to being a detective or or how he sees himself that sort of thing and even even getting out of the car wounded sliding around on the ice and then getting her into the hospital i think like that that what a cap for the 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 tension of that film the part of the tension of the film that focuses on anna um to to play out like that especially in a movie that isn't really all that action packed yeah there's some there's a lot of physicality in this movie there's not a lot of action if that mm-hmm. makes sense yeah kind of like what tim was saying like this makes it a lot more relatable than just your average gun shootout in a film. We all can not yep. only relate to the weather and driving in kind of like a state of panic, but also like driving for a loved one to the emergency room, right? Like we we can all kind of put ourselves in those shoes of like how intense those emotions would be in addition to the physical difficulty of such a drive. Um, and, I, and like sure. I think Deacon Cinematography, to put a cap on all this, really emphasizes like the jarring movements of the car um it's an excellently edited balance of in the car shots uh to exterior shots of like what the car is actually doing to um loki's pov of how he's Mm -hmm. visually strained and his like perspective um back to anna in the back seat like all the cutting is so precise and uh i think it's almost perfectly executed to convey a sense of panic Mm -hmm understanding and perspective all at the same time it's it's really really a master class of cinematography and editing yeah yeah i don't think it overstates it's welcome it's a it's 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 really it really works well it's it's a good length too yeah okay let's jump into some quick shout outs um two of us are 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 definitely more automotive this time Uh, i just want to talk very briefly or just even touch on that uh, i love how deacon shoots the camper van Uh, The first time you see it as the girls and their older brother and older sister come across it. It's almost like a character. It's very imposing. If you if you go back and you check out those shots, it's always sort of encroaching from the left of the frame or from the right of the frame or it's filling up their background. There's something very. Yeah, there's something very insidious about it. And I don't know if it preys on like the sort of social norms we have where like you know you could see an rv in a non-camping space as being creepy or lower class or something like that i think it's super effective and i think those things are carried through into the way it's shot as well i think there's a lot of character in this camper van and that that's how that that's a credit to how deacons is composing these shots there's also something about one camper van 
one RV. Mm-hmm. A group of them doesn't really seem that imposing <laughs> yeah. or threatening or out of place, <laughs> just like a group of people. Yeah. But, you know, it's like there's that there's that theory, and Tim, maybe even you taught me about this, but like the the horror thing of having somebody kind of in middle frame at a mm-hmm. distance, one person, is yeah. creepy. And you you, um, you brought that the, you brought that up in the twenty forty nine one. That's how the dog enters the space uh, when you're meeting Harrison Ford, is a yeah. middle distance subject. Yeah, so you're kind of you, you don't quite have enough detail, but they're close enough to be threatening. Mm. Um, and 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 I think they do that really well with with this, and then it allows them to do not a match cut, but a, a comparative cut to when when they they go to the the parking lot in the in the gas station just a few minutes mm-hmm. later. And uh, and Loki's approaching a, a character you already know. Yeah, the, the, this, the this big, this big imposing unknown. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah. Good, good I mean, that's, that's the automotive one I was doing. Tay, tell us about your uh, your vehicle. Well, so I was gonna do the toothbrush scene that I mentioned earlier, but um, oh, I also mm-hmm. just really like th- like I we've talked about so many scenes aside from the ones we actually brought to the podluck today. So break breaking all the rules. <laughs> so I'll stick with the car over the whole. Um, I really like this aesthetic, and the idea is so daunting and uh, scary to me. Just uh, yeah. Mm almost inescapable just the way that uh holly jones and her husband had devised such a such an effective system for hiding kids underground um is really horrifying and the way they do it is with like a metal hatch that's covered by a parked car that looks like it's inoperable and Mm -hmm. it basically removes all suspicion because the car doesn't look like it can possibly be moved and even when the detectives and the police are all there later on site, you could you just can tell that they're they're not gonna find they're not gonna move that car until they clear this lot. And all these thoughts are literally yeah. going through my head because of how scary I find that <laughs> the setup of the of the whole. Yeah. So it's just so yeah, it's so easy to overlook. Mm-hmm. And I do I love the process in the scene where where Holly kidnaps Dover. Yeah, where she has to get him to to drive the car. She's got the revolver to his head as he does it. He's on that like you know, Coca Cola and and meth mix, whatever that is, um, uh, and stuff like that. But yeah, that's all very cool. And and I love like in rewatching this, you see so many times where they put the car in the foreground of an establishing shot to the Joneses' house. Yeah, rewatching some of the scenes, uh, I I saw it a lot. Yeah, I kind of. It's good coming stuff. back to this movie i'd kind of forgotten some of those more subtle points and that was one of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then uh james i think your shit out may actually be the same as when you did uh 2049 <laughs> which is great i think it's fine because it's it's worth shouting out this guy is uh was looking for some <laughs> yeah. continuity yeah, yeah, yeah david yeah. desmelchian uh who plays yeah. bob taylor he plays uh like a, a medic advisor a, a guy like a technician of some sort coco in, um yeah coco in Blade Runner 2049 but it, it, Bob Taylor I mean I, I do think that in there's a version of this movie where the maze is removed from the storyline and it tightens up the scope of the whole story um, and then we wouldn't get uh, Des Malchian playing Bob Taylor but it's just like proper creepy stuff well played he 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 just kind of nails it it works his physicality is is as good as the lines that he does mm-hmm. or doesn't say like uh, I, I, I enjoyed that the the entire sequence with him for sure although it comes at a weird pace in the movie you know the mm. phone call from the value village or the the goodwill or whatever it was and then it kind of takes off from there 
Uh, but I do, I do think like not only does it, it, it is a very memorable scene in the film that he's in, and then of course it comes to uh, qu- quite a terrible end uh, shortly thereafter. I, I kind of feel bad for Dust Malachian that he gets kind of typecast into these oddball roles, almost like these pathetic kind of roles. Um, mm. But he really has a penchant for nailing them. He He's such a dynamic character actor, and I think it's because of his physical distinctiveness or distinction. Um, he's quite a unique-looking person and brings so much charisma to everything he does. Even though his character seemed almost too obvious to me, I still really find mm-hmm. him intriguing and incredibly watchable on screen every time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, no, he's great. I mean, so this is his first time being cast by Villeneuve. So, you know, because of this, we later, we get 2049, we get him in Dune, all those, all those great roles. So and we got to thank definitely good to always... Nolan for that, I get, I think. Yeah, From Nolan. Yeah, I think we talked about that on 2049. He cast him in Dark Knight. Des Malchin was in a very bad place, and uh, Nolan sort of spread the word about him, which is great. Yeah. That's awesome. And then our last little bit of paperwork, we'll do some recommendations. I'm going to recommend, especially like, you know, we talked about Seven, we talked about Zodiac. Um, something sort of in that oeuvre that you may not have seen is Bong Joon-ho's 2003 Memories of Murder. It's like a South Korean Zodiac. It's very much about a potentially unsolvable crime uh, by at the time when the movie came out, the criminal had not been found, um, which leads to some very, very, very cool production choices. Uh, and it's a fantastic movie. I'd highly recommend it. Um, I just picked it up on Criterion's uh, uh, half off sale. So got, got a sweet deal on that. Nice. I got to check that out. Yeah, it's very good. James, what do you got? Uh, I, I, on the other hand, is, is I'm going to offer a, a palate cleanser from mm-hmm. these sort of dark and twisted uh, <laughs> noir style uh, uh executions of of you know crime fil- thrillers uh and this is a, a documentary that I, I talk about a lot it came out in 2021 it's called the rescue i i'm assuming a good portion of your audience has seen it but for the handful of people who haven't make it a holiday plan to watch this documentary it is all about the uh the the rescue of the uh, 12 boys and their coach um, from a cave, uh, they, were so- they were a soccer team that, that got stuck in a flooded cave in northern Thailand. Uh, they won an Academy Award for this. It's uh, Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin. Who, so if you watched Free Solo, uh, you know that they're very capable. I-, I think this is better than Free Solo. It's a crazier story than Free Solo, and it is the most uplifting and remarkable thing I've seen in a long time. And, and when you finally get to the the plan the plan that does actually work in the end because it's not giving anything away that that these folks lived the plan is so crazy that it almost defies logic i watched this movie uh twice in two days back-to-back evenings uh when it first came out it's available on nat geo or disney plus and if you need an excuse to get into disney plus and and or wasn't enough to get you there this this should definitely be worth a month a month subscription it's uh jaw-dropping it's incredible yeah. filmmaking it's a phenomenal documentary and uh has some odd parallels with prisoners that uh will make themselves evident uh when you check out the documentary uh, i'm sure. very intrigued yeah it's real good and uh tay tay uh wrap us up what do you what are you bringing to the table uh i decided with a more complimentary piece to uh prisoners it's a 2018 film by director Duncan Skiles, and this is called The Clove Hitch Killer. It's a pretty moody, uh, very monotone in terms of, or mute, I should say muted in its color tones. 
uh, and saturation. It kind of feels cold and and stark, kind of very similar to Prisoners or something like Seven without maybe the sure. rainy atmosphere. But kind of picture those movies without the rainy atmosphere. You kind of got the vibe of The Clovich Killer, which is uh, not a particularly novel take on a serial killer close to your home. But I thought it was really well executed movie, um, much better than I would have anticipated for something that I thought was going to be stale um, and overused. But uh, I really like this movie. Um, if the title's throwing you off, a clove hitch is a type of knot, um, and uh, that definitely clarified some things for me when before I watched it. Um, and it, yeah, I think it's a good movie that's been overlooked a lot. And uh, so, 2018's clove hitch killer. Nice. Put it on the list. Well, fantastic. That's another potluck in the bag. That's four of them now. Um, next time we come back, it'll be episode 50, which would be very exciting. We don't know what director we're going to be doing for the next sort of potluck series, but uh, keep an eye on our Instagram, uh, our online sort of activities. You can find them in the show notes. Make sure you check out The Grey Nado uh, with uh, James and Jason. I don't know if you guys have another film club or uh, what's, what's yours? A film? Is it a film, film club? club? Yeah. Yeah, 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 coming up. But, um, no plans for one. We just did one a little while ago, but I'm yeah. sure uh, sometime in the spring. There's a great backlog there. And uh, other than that, thanks for joining us. Uh, we'll, we'll talk to you about uh, the very similar uh, related White Christmas <laughs> in, uh, in two weeks or so. There's a treat, guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, James. Yeah. It's nice having you back. Thanks, James. Bye, everyone. <laughs>